Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Willy Willy Harry Stee. And we have a treat for you. Every year I host a history quiz and do a talk at the fabulous Chalk Valley History Festival in Wiltshire, founded by Tom Holland of the Rest is History podcast and his brother James Holland of the We Have Ways podcast. In the summer of 2023, instead of doing a talk as usual, I hosted a live edition of this podcast with three great guests, Tom Holland himself, as well as Ian Hislop and the historian Leander Delisle, where we discussed who were the best and worst monarchs in British history. Now, the show sounds a bit different to our other episodes because it was recorded at an outdoor stage at the festival and there were living history reenactments going on all around us. Explosions, gunfire, steam engines, passing crowds. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this, this wider look at the British monarchy and I thoroughly recommend a visit to the Chalk Valley Festival. Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry three. One, two, three, Ned's Richard two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the Lad. Mary, Bessie, James, Evane, Charlie, Charlie, James again. William and Mary, Anna, Gloria, four Georges, William and Victoria. Then Edward, George, and Ned the Eighth quickly goes and abdicates. Then comes George and Lizzie too, and Charlie next to see us through. It's all downhill after that. Uh, that was a rhyme that I learnt at school, as did many of my generation, as a way of remembering all the uh, monarchs 
the English monarchs, the British monarchs, whatever you want to call them, from William the Conqueror uh, right up to Elizabeth II. And I had no idea back then in the 60s that I was going to have to wait quite so long uh, to update the rhyme with Charles coming to the throne. And my uh, podcast is based on that rhyme. We start with William I, and it's a monarch per episode, and it will finish with Charles III. Although, by the time I finish, who knows? <laughs> we may have moved on. We all of us know a bit about a few of the kings and queens, kind of here and there, but fitting it all together and seeing how we get from one monarch to another is another matter. So uh, I've been learning a lot doing the series, and people seem to have been enjoying having those gaps in their historical knowledge filled in. I must explain to um, anyone listening to the podcast uh, that this, this episode is coming live from the Chalk Valley History Festival, and we are outdoors. And all around us, they're letting off howitzers and tanks uh, and anti-aircraft guns, and there is also some medieval jousting going on. So if there's any weird bangs and noises, don't be alarmed. It's not Putin. But uh, as well as doing the central narrative in the series, I'm doing a few kind of side episodes to, to, to take a more general look um, at these monarchs in a historical context. And as this year, the year of recording this show, uh, 2023, is, is the year of King Charles's coronation, it seemed like a good opportunity to discuss the idea of what makes a good or a bad monarch and who have been the best and the worst in history. And I had some people going around and asking some of the people earlier on that one. And I won't tell you what the result is of that questionnaire. And so this Chalk Valley History Festival is a fantastic opportunity to get together some proper experts to... Um... <laughs> I'm in the wrong tent. LAUGHTER um, the proper experts who do know a hell of a lot more about this stuff than I do. So please, would you give a warm welcome to Tom Holland, <laughs> Leander Delisle, <laughs> and, and Ian Hislop. Can I just first ask you all, did any of you learn that rhyme or anything similar at school as a way of trying to remember history? Um, I, I didn't, and that may be because um, I went to school very near where we're sitting now, in the heart of the Chalk Valley, um, in Salisbury, um, and this is the land of the West Saxon kings, Wessex, um, from which the, uh, the, the line of the English kings ultimately came. And of course, by starting with William the Conqueror, you're freezing out great names like Alfred the Great, Athelstan, um, King Edgar, and uh, maybe it was a principled stand on the part of our <laughs> teachers. That <laughs> um, uh, they would boycott a rhyme that omitted the House of Wessex. Yeah, well, you could have learned a, a similar rhyme about the Anglo Saxons. Yeah. They all tended to have the same Alfie, name. Alfie, Eddie, Alfie, Alf, 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 Alf. Yeah, it would have, would have been a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> Leander, did you, did you have anything? Um, I used a rather different technique. Um, I, we used to take um, write our exams in ink. Uh, so if I didn't know a date, it would be 1830. 
blot <laughs> with my finger. And I just hoped that people would think that my tears were falling onto the exam paper and that, you know, oh no, obviously she knew the day eight. So I'm afraid that was um, my, my technique for learning dates or not learning dates. My prep school, um, we had to learn absolutely everything by rote. Um, history was a sideline, it was mostly Latin. <laughs> so every class started and you came in and you said, Mensa, 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 Mensa. Mensa, 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 Mensa. Good, his lot. That must have been invaluable for that, the rest that, of my life. That has taken me through journalism in spades. <laughs> but then we did history, but unlike you, we weren't allowed to use silly nicknames. So it was yeah. William the First, 1066, William the Second, 1087, Henry, 1100, Stephen, 1135. Then I changed classes. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what I will say is that when I go to the dentist and the drill starts up, I kind of shut my eyes and I just go through the lines of the kings and queens. <laughs> I find it quite kind of, it settles my mind. <laughs> well, I, well I, similarly for me, I properly relearned that rhyme in, in the lockdown, in COVID, as a way of trying to keep sane and as a way of kind of lulling myself to sleep at night. And through doing that, I, I realised that I didn't know who most of these people were. So it's been fantastic doing the podcast to kind of catch up with that. Well, my hero, George III, didn't know who he was. <laughs> King of America? <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> For a bit. But so... Choosing the best and worst monarchs from over 40 different candidates over some thousand years, and, well, 2,000 years, if, well, <laughs> yeah, 1,500 years, if we're going back, <laughs> um, is quite tricky, and there's a danger that we'll discuss only the obvious well-known names. But what's ha very handy is that each of my guests is kind of interested in different parts of history, and I've asked them in advance to select monarchs from their own era, as it were. That gun is getting really annoying. Um, God, think how it felt in the war. <laughs> I'm sure they said much the same thing. <laughs> Trying to do a naffy quiz show here. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so uh, Tom Holland is one of the co-founders of the Chalk Valley History Festival and a very popular historian of the ancient world to boot. And many of you from the world of podcasts will know him from the phenomenally successful podcast, The Rest is History, which he co-hosts with Dominic Sandbrook. And Tom is perfect to cover the early monarchs, the Normans and, Plant <laughs> <laughs> the Normans and Plantagenets. And I guess you might even want to go for <coughs> an Anglo-Saxon. I might. Tom. So, so if we're thinking about, so we're asking about the greatest king? Yes. Well, I think there's a clue in the name, Alfred the Great. He's great. <laughs> Can't argue with that. And the only one of our monarchs who's been called that. No, so <clears throat> Knut, the amusingly named Knut, the Danish king, uh, who is perhaps better known as Canute, the guy who tries to stop yes. the, the tide coming in, um, he is also apparently the great. Was that his idea or did <laughs> someone else call him that? It was probably his idea. The I great mean, he was Knut. very he was very brutal, but he so so there are there are actually two: it's Alfred the Great and Knut the Great. But I think of those two, Alfred is indisputably the greater. Right, and so, so he's my choice. And so, who would be your worst from that era? Uh, John, John, I think we all know who the cowardly James. lion. <coughs> yes, <laughs> as played by Peter Ustinov. Yeah. <laughs> so, for the middle period of our history, the Tudors and Stuarts, we have Leander de Lisle. 
who, as well as writing about history for many newspapers and magazines, has published several best-selling history books on this period. Most recently, Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix, Queen, about the wife of King Charles I. Um, and so, Leander, you know, regarding queens, one of the biggest changes to the monarchy during that period is the fact that we did have actual queens on the throne rather than just queens as, as wives of husbands. And I should, I mean, that was a big change, but I should also imagine that overall today, if, if people were going for their favourite monarchs, I would think queens will, will score a lot higher than than the blokes like Henry VIII. Yes, it's a bit of a matriarchy. I mean, when you were going to ask um, best uh, monarch in the sort of Tudor and Stuart period, I was tempted to say um, Mary the um, First. As best. Taught, yeah, as uh, best. Controversial. Um, she taught Elizabeth so much. Um, but Elizabeth I is the one who would definitely be the popular choice and I think probably the fair choice is, uh, as best. Um, and uh, do you want me to mention the worst as well? Yes. Uh, so uh, for worst, I think I'd have to go for Charles I, who had a fantastic wife, but, you know, and was a good man, but a really crap Useless monarch. King. Yeah. yeah. Um, Charlie, can I just... Uh, what's the rubric on this? Are we allowed... Are we talking monarchs or kings? So would monarchs. Cromwell be... A, Oliver Cromwell be a candidate? Yes. Yeah, I he did wonder that. Yeah. He would. You could include him. There's no real rules, Tom. Right, this is the excitement of it. <laughs> OK, so... So Cromwell could be, bear mm. that in mind. But, but uh, and Leander, just briefly, what, what was the mechanic that finally allowed queens to, to take the throne? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't against English law, as it was in France, and so it was um, possible. And it, Mary I was a real badass, basically. So um, she, she wasn't expected uh, to be queen, and she, um, she took the throne. I mean, it had been bequeathed by Edward VI um, to his cousin, uh, Lady Jane Grey, um, but she had been married off, and so it was expected, really, that her husband would rule. Um, whereas, you know, Mary... Tudor, Mary I, really took the throne in her own right. I mean, she, she, she took it at the head of an army, but she was also accepted by the people. <laughs> Happily. She was a popular choice. She while. was the popular choice. <laughs> well. She was then. I know she's not popular amongst our audience. <laughs> no, no. Before no, we no started, see, that's, yeah. That comes later. <laughs> and to cover the modern period, from the Hanoverians to the Windsors, we have the excellent Ian Hislop. And as well as being the editor of what I think is our best news publication, which is so much more, so much more than just a satirical journal, Private Eye, he is the, also the only person to have appeared in every episode of Have I Got News For You. The um, enormously popular satirical news quiz show on the BBC. And Ian has also written and presented documentaries about history and the English and has also found time to knock off a couple of history books and some popular plays along the way. And with his writing partner, Nick Newman, Ian also created Tim Nice But Dim for Harry Enfield. So, Ian, I ask you to concentrate on the modern period. Um, and do you think it's fair to say that from the Hanoverians onwards, the monarchs became increasingly irrelevant and the politicians, particularly the prime ministers, became much more important and influential and they became the people to guide English history. Yeah, I think that's right. And the, that's the reason I've chosen as my best king, um, George III, because I think he was the most boring 
Um, and I think that's really important in a monarch. And I think he essentially set the tone for our best modern monarchs. Um, to do as little as possible. To do as little as possible. It would be very boring. The problem with the monarchy right up to the present day is if they go on holiday to Scotland and it's very cold and they have dogs, we don't care. Um, if they go to the Mediterranean and have a good time, we, we resent it. Um, so I think in order to be popular, like George, you've got to be very dull. He was a very, very pious man. He liked his children. He only had one wife. Um, and he, he laid down a constitutional monarchy where basically um, the politicians made the decisions. So I'm... And they've done a terrific job. Yes. <laughs> well, certainly compared to the monarchs. To right. have. Um, obviously, apart from Bloody Mary, who is yeah. marvellous. Um, <laughs> so I choose him. Um, and he, uh, I mean, you know, he, he went to the seaside on holiday. He made Weymouth popular. <laughs> Um, th these are important things, so I think he's terrific. And 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 who do you think is the worst from that period? His son, <laughs> uh, George the Fourth, who was the opposite of his father. Literally everything, he was the Prince Regent. And uh, there's a wonderful cartoon of him, um, uh, enormously fat, um, sitting there drunk with gambling debts, with a big mop of blonde tousled hair. <laughs> um, it's a very unfair cartoon. Um, <laughs> so I, I, like, I like him for worst. So did he try to interfere more than his father had He done? did, um, and he was disastrous. Essentially, he tried to unlearn all the lessons his father had learned. Which seems to have been, happened very often in history. That, that, that Monarchs never seemed to learn from the mistakes of the previous monarch. They always thought, oh, no, I can do it better. Yet my, my father realised he had to sign the Magna Carta or whatever to keep on side with people, but I'll forget that and upset all the noblemen all over again. There's always some new mistake to make, isn't there? <laughs> George read books. Which, which George? Um, George III, which was unheard of for a member of the royal family. I'm mean, still pretty rare. He, um, he, he, he came across Edward Gibbon, didn't he? The, yes. the, the author of uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is enormously long. Scribble, scribble. Scribble, scribble, another <laughs> fat book, Mr Gibbon. What, 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 what? Which, Marvelous. I always, <laughs> yeah, that's the attitude to literature that we like to see from the, and also the, um, uh, wasn't it the, the late queen and her sister Margaret and the queen mother um, invited T.S. Eliot to come and read The Wasteland. Yes. And they got a very funny man looking like a bank clerk came in and started reading this. I had no idea what he was talking about. And we all got the giggle. <laughs> Which I have to say, if you listen to a recording of Eliot reading The Wasteland, <laughs> it is quite funny. You get the giggles. And he was a bank clerk, so. Yeah. So not unfair. <laughs> Our greatest poet. No, yeah, I mean, don't mind the big Philistine as long as they're sort of vaguely interested. But the thing, George IV wasn't a Philistine, no, exactly. was he? I mean, that right. was the problem. Brighton Pavilion, he left us something good, didn't he? Yeah, he left us tributes to himself. Yeah. <laughs> and I think also he basically they invents the look of the modern coronation because the idea that you dress up in Tudor fancy dress, mm. kind of cosplay, is all him. Um, and the fact that we still have these ludicrous costumes, I mean, Penny Mordaunt has obviously <laughs> learnt yeah. from uh, sat at the feet of George the Fourth, is, yeah. is basically his creation. So in a sense, the kind of the colour and dazzle that we still have from the monarchy, I mean, that is 
George the Fourth's contribution to a degree, couldn't you say? Well, so a... we, we, the flummery is him. The flummery is, yeah. I mean, George and... the Fourth. All oh, right, that's another reason to make him a bad. Oh come on, we want flummery <laughs> with a monarchy. How much yeah, flummery do you want? Loads. A lot. I think if you're going to have a coronation, you've got to. I mean, you don't want people just in sort of in, in suits, you know? No, I think you want you, think you want the velvet and the no, no, exactly. With the carrier fun. bag. You want, you want the whole thing <laughs> with some prosecco in it. <laughs> we want strange women carrying swords. Yes. Tom Tom's proclivities and for another occasion. <laughs> I was told there were a lot of jam jars around in the coronation because because no one could go for a pee for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I bet you that was something that went back to the well, Middle they, Ages. They well, um, yes. they set up a toilet behind the high altar at George the Third's coronation, and um, for the Queen particularly, who had a very weak bladder, she rushed round and found the Duke of Norfolk there eating a large pie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they were so thoughtful this time. <laughs> but, I mean, what's clear, talking about this, is the idea of what makes a great monarch has changed considerably. I mean, particularly since the early period when a, a monarch, which was essentially a king, was expected to ride a big horse with a Penny Mordaunt-style sword mm -hmm. and kill foreigners. And that was applauded, whereas yeah. nowadays, the less they do, the better. You know, Elizabeth II, bless her, has been applauded for doing absolutely nothing. Uh, nothing that you could see, Charlie. That's right. She was incredibly busy behind the scenes. She had dogs <laughs> and horses <laughs> and those blankets you lay out and have picnics on. And Tupperware. Yes. I, I, this, I, I joke, but these are all vastly important in the... In the, the myth she, of modern In a monarchy. way, she did. I mean, I mean, you're right. There was a, the, one of the things that was expected of uh, of kings was to to extend their land holdings, and and the queen, Queen Elizabeth II, I suppose, managed to decline the loss of empire, but she did help create the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth grew and grew and grew. So in a way, she um, she did what um, the great monarchs of the past were expected to do. Um, you know, she extended soft power, British soft power and influence. So, uh, I don't know, she did it without the sword, but she did it. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right that you, c you have to judge the, the, the greatness or the failure of a monarch by the standards of the age. So you can't blame Elizabeth II, for instance, for not attacking the French, which was very much what people in the Middle Ages expected of, of monarchs. And, of and, and I reckon he wants us to do that now. Well, I mean, I mean Charles III, I mean... You know, could be could be an opportunity, but I think that 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 by that standard, I, I think the two the two greatest kings or queens of England are the first and the most recent. So Athelstan, yeah. the king who forges England, he's the first real king. He takes all the kind of shattered remnants of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, pieces them together, sets up the monarchy. Um, defeats the Vikings, establishes a kind of um, a civilised Christian model for, for, for kingship, which is still with us to this day. I mean, an, an astonishing achievement by the standards of his own age. And I would say that, um, judged by the standards of what contemporary people in Britain want from a monarch, I would say Elizabeth II has been equally successful because she was, as, as Ian says, transcendently boring. Mm. That was the whole point. <laughs> now, she did is you choose um, Alfred? as your great king. Yeah. Would, I mean, his translation of um, the Bible into um, English and in the vernacular and emphasis on learning and general bookishness, I mean, that wasn't... I mean, that marked him out, didn't it? That made it him did. A, a, a better king. It did, and I, 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 
I mean, he wasn't a king of England, so just talking only about right, kings of so England. But I, I would say that Alfred is an even more astonishing figure. Am I allowed to give my reasons for that? Well, go on then. Okay, so there is a point at which in, in, in Alfred's so, reign Leander. as king, <laughs> there is a point at which the entire future of, of a viable, uh, independent England is hanging by a thread, where he's been attacked by the Vikings... Uh, on Twelfth Night, he's fled to the marshes of Athelney. He's busy burning cakes and, and what have you. Um, but he then gets an ar- raises an army, defeats the Vikings, forces them out of the limits of Wessex, imposes a treaty on them, and then uses the, the, the opportunity that this victory has given him to, uh, to revitalise uh, the, the defences of, of, of Wessex, to build markets, to grow the economy so it can be funded to resurrect um, learning, monasteries, mm. um, literary traditions that have been destroyed. And I, I think that the scale of his achievements are stupefying, and that is why he deserves to be called great. And what makes it all the more moving is that he did all this while suffering from chronic piles. And so his, <laughs> his biographer, Asser, a Welshman, says that, um, that, that this was actually a blessing from the Lord. His piles. It was. It was the the Lord graciously gave him piles. Gave him a to concentrate the mind. <laughs> he did it again with Martin Luther, didn't he? The Lord's very generous yeah. with piles and yeah. marks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the most sycophantic biography ever, though. Bishop Asser's uh, biography of Alfred, isn't it? I, I mean, it's worse I, than I, that one of Boris. <laughs> And you can't compare Boris to Alfred the Great. No, you're right. That's I, very, very hard. I withdraw it. <laughs> Boris would blame someone else for the cakes. Not me, I didn't burn them. <laughs> didn't even see the cakes. There were no cakes. It was I, a work I, event. I had no <laughs> business with the cakes. So, Leander, you chose Elizabeth I. Yes. But you I, toyed with Mary. I, I did, um, who came first and sort of paved the way, really. Um, as I said, to, to sort of, I suppose... For a, for a queen to rule, for there to be a ruling queen, and also um, how to um, how to woo the people, which uh, Mary the first did, and Elizabeth very much took this up. She didn't trust her; she didn't trust the nobility. She didn't trust her, her, the, the people around her, her immediate supporters. Um, and as she said from the beginning, she put her faith in the people, and she wooed the people. And if she wasn't our greatest monarch, she was certainly one, if not the most remarkable. Um, because here you had, um, first of all, a female monarch at a time when uh, women certainly weren't considered, you know, that they should, they should be allowed to rule. They were Eve to, you know, to, to Adam, the evil seducers, um, the morally weak as well as physically weak, you know. Um, so A, she was a woman. B, she was illegitimate. She remained illegitimate in law throughout her reign. Um, so she had no rights under common law only under act of, by an act of parliament. She had no husband, which is considered extraordinary. She had no children, so no obvious heirs. And yet she stayed as queen for sort of 40 odd years, whatever it was. And um, see the problem with dates and that ink blotting again. <laughs> and um, kept England stable, um, despite the fact she never named an, even named her dad till right at the end. Even then, probably not. So she was an extraordinary, remarkable woman um, at a very sort of turbulent time. Um, England was relatively peaceful. It was the rather unfortunate business of the Northern Rebellion, but nevertheless, relatively peaceful, stayed on the throne, kept her head for all that time. Amazing woman. 
and and not a bad time culturally in England as well. With the yes, no, absolutely. Not that she was not, not that she was personally a great fan of Shakespeare, to be honest. Um, she wasn't, but um, <laughs> he was certainly around at the time. I don't know if she can get some kind of bonus points for that. I'm well, not entirely she didn't sure. Kill him. She didn't kill him. No, she said don't, she didn't say don't go to the, the awful man's place. But, I mean, she might well have done, mightn't she? Because she there was Essex's done, but... rebellion. The, the, yes. Earl of Essex. And, yes. and he sponsors and he put on, Richard II. He put on Richard II. Yeah, I so am Richard II. No, you're not that. Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. It's another reason why she didn't really like uh, Shakespeare or plays in general. Is that there used to be some kind of dig about her or one of her ancestors. And uh, so understandably, she felt a bit like Prince Harry in the newspapers, really. I think she saw Shakespeare as a kind of Murdoch figure, maybe. Um, so she sort of tolerated it in a way that I suppose Prince Harry doesn't tolerate. Um, but um, yeah, but she wasn't a great fan, certainly. With some reason. Uh, well, it's like the big, que the big unanswered question was, did Queen Elizabeth II ever watch The Crown? Mm. We, yes. we shall never know. Did Elizabeth I actually write Shakespeare's plays? Oh. The popular theory. <laughs> Line of Duty, that was her favourite, I believe. What, Queen Elizabeth I? Elizabeth II. Elizabeth I, I said not what her favourite would have been. <laughs> and, and your worst was Charles I. Poor old Charles I, yes. Um, a very principled man, but a useless king. I think that the main point of monarchs um, and, uh, was, maybe it still is, um, about um, uh, you know, establishing peace, harmony, um, allowing justice. And you know, Charles, due to his incompetence, his inability to read people and so forth, paved the way to civil war in, his th in the three kingdoms. A greater death rate than we suffered even in the First World War. Um, you know, that is pretty bad. Ends up with his head cut off, monarchy's overthrown, we get Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But his wife... You, she did her best. Poor woman. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God, she tried to save that man's neck. Um, and, um, you know, she, 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 there were moments when she nearly succeeded. But uh, sadly, even she was unable to save Charles from himself in the end. But, yeah. And, and, and uh, Tom, you, were you angling to put Oliver Cromwell as, as a great? I think Oliver Cromwell is an astonishing figure, yeah. I mean, I, I think that he and um, Elizabeth I were not taking be. place in Ireland. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, uh, in, were you a fan of the, the Ladybird books? Um, I was, yes. I learned all my history, Tom. So um, people who... who of a certain age may remember Ladybird books which told the story of, of usually great men and women um, and the one of Cromwell begins for, unforgettably with him being stolen from his crib by a monkey which is <laughs> history as, as it should be told and it ends with a kind of eulogy on him uh, and it describes him as a very kind man brackets except in Ireland which <laughs> I, I think is one of the great great sentences of historical analysis ever written <laughs> An understatement. Yeah. <laughs> but you went for your, for your worst um, monarch, you went for John. Are there similarities between John and Charles? No. Uh, oh, Charles was a basically kind of, I think, a, a relatively decent man. I mean, he was kind of incompetent. John right. was an absolute shit. I, and, I, you know, there is no other word for him. There's the most kind of memorable um, epithet, I think, ever written about any English king was written by... Matthew Paris, not the Times columnist, but the, uh, the, the monk, I think he was at St. Albans, who said um, that foul as hell is, 
it is made fouler by the presence of John. And the thing about John, so, so there are t- really, the, the, there are two main ways of judging how successful a king is in the Middle Ages. The first of these is whether you manage to maintain your dynasty. And the second is whether you manage to maintain the lands that you have inherited. Now, I think that it's really interesting that the two medieval kings who fall foul of this um, and who have really, really black reputations, they are both kings who murdered their nephews. So the first of these, Richard III, and I'm not hearing anybody, any Ricardian nonsense, he murdered them. And the second one is John. The penalty that Richard III pays for the murder of his nephews is that the very, very stable dynasty that, that he belongs to, the Yorkist dynasty, simply implodes and collapses. Hence the Tudors, hence Elizabeth I. So by that measure, Richard III is a disastrous king. But John is even worse because he um, inherits a vast swathe of territories, not just in, uh, in Britain, not just in Ireland, but in uh, France as well. And over the course of his reign, all those lands pretty much slip through his grasp. So he ends up being called Lackland. And then as he is dying, he has lost, it seems that he's lost the very kingdom of England itself. The French prince Louis has arrived, um, and it's only by the skin of his teeth that John's very young son, Henry III, um, manages to cling on. So Henry III is, is um, although he will go on to, to renovate Westminster Abbey, and so the, the abbey as it looks now is really Henry III's achievement, he has to be crowned in Gloucester Abbey, uh, Gloucester Cathedral, as oh. it will become. Because, um, because, because he can't get to London, because he doesn't even have London. So I think by that standard, John is a truly abysmal king, and he was just a horrible person as well. But that's letting his brother off, isn't it? I mean, Richard Coeur de Leon was a really shockingly bad king. No, he wasn't, not by the standards of his age, because what, <laughs> people, wanted, what people wanted from, from, a, from a great king... Was he massacring wanted, he, the infidel. Yeah, go off and smite the Saracens. <laughs> Be a <laughs> kind of guy, you know, smashing anvils with swords, hanging out with minstrels in castles, um, attacking the French. I mean, Richard the Lionheart did that tremendously. The fact that he was willing to sell London to do it, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> but he he did sort of fail, didn't he? No, he was a great, he, he was a great king. He became the subject of 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 uh, minstrels, and you know, the tales of his doings in the in the Holy Land brought great glory on England and the lands that he ruled. He was a kind of an absolute sinecure of chivalry and heroism. His name remembers. He's the Coeur de Lyon. He's played by Sean Connery. I mean, th- that is the measure of how good a king he is. I absolutely agree and, that and by our minute, standards... For a minute, I thought you were a serious historian, but fortunately... No, but but by, our sta- by our standards, of course, he's terrible. I mean, you know, he, 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 I mean, he literally said, I would sell London if it would raise me enough mm. money that I could go on the crusade. I mean, that, that's clearly not not good by our standards, but by the standards of the age, he was a great king. I think by the standards of losing France, Henry VI would also be up there. Yeah, Henry VI well. is, is, is bad, but I, th- I, I think... I, I, I make allowances for him because I think that... And lost his dynasty. His dynasty. Yeah, he did. Well, two things. I mean, firstly, um, I, yeah. I don't think English rule in France in the 15th century was ever going to be possible. So I would put Henry V down as a terrible king as well. Mm. I mean, I, I, I think that what... But Henry, there were Henry, brilliant plays written about yeah, him. Yeah, there were. So, so by, again, by the standards of his age... He Henry, Henry the, Kenneth Yeah, and Laurence Olivier. <laughs> yeah. By the standards of, of, of the 15th century, again, Henry V is, is a, a, a triumphant king, puissant, glorious, heroic, 
But I think by our standards, there was no way that England was ever going to conquer France. Henry probably understood this. I mean, Shakespeare gives him the lines, busy, um, giddy minds with foreign quarrels. He's doing it because he is the son of a usurper. And so all of France bleeds for that sake. Mm. I, so I think he hands on a terrible inheritance to his son. The fact that his son is, is woefully incompetent. I mean, he seems to have been mentally not up to it. He's not a morally contemptible person. No in the way that I think um, that but John But to, to return to George III, who lost the, the, the entire colonies in America and would be, by those standards, disastrous, I think was marvellous, because America is, is not ours. So that, uh, uh, that was uh, a that's a good thing? That's terrific. Have you ever had a cup of tea in America, Ian? <laughs> they but microwave six, it. Yeah. This is the legacy of George III. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible legacy. <laughs> They don't use egg cups. No, they didn't even have kettles. <laughs> We've slightly strayed um, <laughs> from the topic of this discussion. Well, no, it's still on what's important, Charlie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hating foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast. No, I said losing all this land. By lots of standards, you know, George, George III, he lost America and he went mad. That's the two things everyone knows about him. But he... He was on the throne for 60 years. It was an extraordinary period domestically of um, uh, uh, peace and um, uh, change. Um, apart and, from that revolution. Uh, yeah, apart from <laughs> one or two of them. Um, but there wasn't a revolution in England. Well, it was no, industrial revolution. In America, I suppose. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> at the one. early period, we'll watch that. No, I meant literally domestically, yes. if you just think about your own, your own country. And it was from... Um, the point of view of, of um, journalists and satirists and cartoonists, it was it was a golden age because the monarchy had to put up with being laughed at. Um, and instead of just killing you, um, which was previously the style, um, if you tried to make jokes about uh, the monarchy or uh, the people in power, um, the royal family had to come up with new ideas. And uh, my favourite was the Hanoverians' idea was... They're these satirical prints on sale, which are very rude about us. So we'll go in and we'll buy them up. <laughs> and then the booksellers thought, then we'll print some more. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't terribly bright, the Hanoverians. Um, but it was, it was a, an extraordinary age for um, dissent um, and for being allowed to push the frontiers and make objections. Um, and one of my great heroes, a man called William Hone, um, uh, was tried for um, seditious libel in the middle of George's reign um, for a series of very rude pamphlets about George III. And they tried him three days running in the Guildhall. The, the jury found him innocent on the first day, so they tried him again the next morning. <laughs> uh, and then they found him innocent again on the second day. And they said, right, we're going to try you again on the third day. And the third day, there were 20,000 people outside the Guildhall shouting, home is innocent. And they thought... Let's see how it goes today. And they found him innocent again. <laughs> uh, and it, it was a turning point, really, for the early forms of dissent and satire yeah. being allowed. Because under, under Charles I, you know, if you, were, if you were rude about him, he had, you know, seditious, libelous stamp in, in burnt into your face and, and your ears chopped off. So that's, that has stopped, did it, under George III? Yeah, no, no, they no, didn't no do that. SL. I was thinking of that as a tattoo right. here. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Your face would be covered in them. It would be, yeah. <laughs> and your ears would be a bit smaller as well. <laughs> in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems. Problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. <laughs> but, um... Leander, in, in terms of sort of leaving a secure legacy, I've always been sort of intrigued for of why Elizabeth didn't marry and didn't think that having children might be a good thing. Well, she'd seen um, the examples that had gone before her. So uh, the, the, the first was attempt at having a, having a reigning queen was her cousin, um, Jane Dudley, Jane Grey, and who was married uh, to this um, boy, Guilford Dudley, who wasn't accepted by the English people and was very quickly overthrown and then ended up being beheaded by Mary I. And then she saw her sister, Mary I, uh, married um, a Philip of Spain, um, and that immediately provoked a rebellion. Right. Mary actually very cleverly, I mean, Philip had no power in England. He had no land in England. It was extraordinary. She completely sort of, castrated him basically politically um, but even so you know there had been this rebellion so Elizabeth was very aware of that when she came to the throne she was in love with a Dudley um, who was married that was not very convenient and uh, when uh, his wife um, fell down the stairs and broke her neck and however that happened we don't know um, Elizabeth realised, you know, marrying a Dudley, probably not a good move. Who else was there to marry? You marry an English nobleman, it sets the other noblemen. Right. You marry a foreigner, they're going to revolt. So better not marry at all. And, and who did she appoint as her successor? She didn't appoint... Well, she played all them all off against each other. So we know very, people know about um, Mary, Queen of Scots, and they think, oh, Mary, Queen of Scots uh, was, was, was her was her heir and was her great rival. And actually, this isn't true. When she became queen, her principal rival, her heir in law and statute, the same statute under which she became queen, was uh, this girl, uh, Lady Catherine Grey, sister of the nine days queen, Lady Jane Grey, um, who um, did marry secretly, um, was immediately thrown into the tower where she had a, had a son uh, who Elizabeth declared illegitimate so that he wouldn't have a right um, and this girl eventually died uh, under house, house arrest. Um, and she did this with all her heirs. She basically played them off against each other, kept them imprisoned. When, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, fled to England, she was imprisoned and eventually uh, executed. Um, now, remind me, uh, uh, did you put Elizabeth as the best or the worst? <laughs> <laughs> well, she was... This is it. She said being, being a good or charming person doesn't make you a, a, right. a, a good um, monarch. Um, I would say one of the worst things that she did as a monarch is, is that torture became uh, very commonplace mm. in England during the Elizabethan period. L torture's always been against English common law, um, but it was, it was used under the royal warrants, the Privy Council warrants, 
frequently during Elizabeth's reign. So she certainly wouldn't be our greatest monarch, but maybe our best in this period. I said she was yeah. a remarkable survivor and that helped us. Um, she certainly was uh, far from perfect. She felt, she's once said, people worship the rising over the setting sun. So if she'd named an heir, they would have been the rising sun. Mm. She would have been the setting sun. That would have been a cause, problems, revolts, rebellions. And so even on her deathbed, they say at the very end that she had they'd gone through a whole list of you know, potential candidates. And then they'd finally said, you know, James VI of Scotland. And she had sort of gone, ah. <laughs> um, but, um, but we heard this from... Uh, her Secretary of State, Robert Sissel, who, um, you know, who, who wanted James to be king. So she probably just sort of lay there dying mm. quietly, hoping it was all going to be over soon. That was, again, was a weakness in a way that she didn't have a named heir or successor. But perhaps it was also part of her genius at keeping England from English from fighting each other. Mm. Um, so, yeah, remarkable, if not great. And also people think of her as being greatly loved. And she, she, but by the end, people were dying to get rid of her because they were sort of fed up. Um, she was old, um, you know, impoverished. No teeth. England had been looted and she had no teeth, exactly. Funny, how, funny enough, how you look was certainly considered important in a mm. monarch. Um, and with Henry VIII, the fact that he was very good looking when he was young was something that was greatly admired about him. And they said, like Edward, his grandfather, Edward IV, how good looking he was. I mean, when he was fat and old and hideous in the, in the 1540s, Cortes was still saying to, to foreign diplomats, of course, you know, our king, he's so mm. handsome, you know, he's so marvellous looking. And it was, I suppose... It was Even as the stench from his leg Elsa wafts out of his bedroom. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose you were supposed to reflect the divine and the divine is beautiful. So, you know, so your appearance is important, actually. So the fact she was losing her teeth and not looking her best, you know, was, a, was, was, was definitely a downer. And you... But you could just manipulate your image. So Which Henry just did. showed the old pictures of himself. Yeah, and Elizabeth um, did the same. And then most people would think, oh, that's what the monarch looks like. Whereas now we see all the time. And we still judge them. That's the, that's the awful thing, isn't it? You know, you, you see this even... I mean, I think, thinking with the Prince and Princess of Wales... Um, Princess of Wales is, is a very beautiful woman, but, you know, she's, what, 40 or something? You know, she's obviously going to get older, as we all do, and, you know, a bit sort of droopier around the giles, as we all do. And you can be sure she'll be judged for that poor woman and, mm. and will think less of her in some terrible level. Um, and they'll be looking at the sort of children for perking up the monarchy. Yeah, yeah, the reaction at the end of the exactly. coronation. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just before we sort of try and come to some conclusions, um, I suppose we should talk about where the monarchy is heading. I know it's quite a controversial subject at a f history festival <laughs> that's sponsored by the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> and they have spies. They record everything. And the next day in the newspapers, it's comedian Charlie Higson claims <laughs> Elizabeth II was a boring queen. Um, but as Ian said, that was part, part of what made her so great, is that she didn't try and um, start another crusade or a war against France. She tried to hold things together. Well, I, Ma Macron loved, him, loved her, didn't yes, he? Yeah. He, he gave her a horse, yeah, which I thought was very medieval behaviour. <laughs> yes. For her birthday. No, for her, uh, no, for her jubilee. Yeah. He gave her a horse. I think, that, I think the headline will be, Good historian present. says Kate will get old. <laughs> <laughs> Shock. Which I think is pretty poor. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting with Charles, because if, if, you, if you look back in, 
history, particularly in the Middle Ages, of, the, of those kings who were considered terrible, like Edward II, it was because they tried to get on with ordinary people, uh, because they were interested in the arts and culture, because they didn't want to go to war. And those are all the things that we now say are uh, admirable in a modern monarch. And, well, and Charles very much would have been locked away while they, they searched for a more rugged, manly, red-haired king who might... Um, he's quite sporty. Yes. He, he's he, quite sporty. He, I mean, he, he who knows he, what he might be like with a sword in his hand? Well, oh. interestingly, George III was called Farmer George um, in his early times because he took too much interest in agriculture. And at the beginning of his reign, everyone thought how incredibly funny this was. And then there was the agricultural revolution and then a lot of Farmer George's ideas turned into reality. And it is... Charles is a great fan of George III, the current Charles III. Um, and if we look at Charles's life, um, in the early days, there was a great deal of people saying, Charles, isn't he ludicrous? He talks to trees. He's green. He's eco. How hysterical. Now everyone goes, Charles, incredibly far-sighted monarch um, who's interested in those things. So history, even over the course of a lifetime, in our lifetime, has completely changed its opinion. I mean, it's the same in Charles's personal life. It was Charles, blimey, you know, he's been unfaithful. How awful. And then, then he marries Camilla and people say, blimey, he's been with the same woman for decades. <laughs> yeah, what sort of role model is that? <laughs> um, so Blended history shifts families. all the time. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's certainly being um, kinder to Charles than it was in the early days. And I think, I mean, and George's reputation after 60 years was completely different to when he started. It, se it seemed, I don't know whether this is, I'm just thinking aloud, th that um, press coverage of, of members of the royal family becomes more hostile maybe when they enter their late 30s, 40s, because I, I think that same happened with the Queen, that um, she, was, she was least popular in her mm. kind of the mid, uh, you know, her midlife. Early life, very popular, late life, very popular, less so in her midlife. And maybe the same is true of Charles. Mm. Um, I think that's certainly right. the case with Harry. But actually, we haven't talked about thinking of Harry and exile. We haven't talked about Edward VIII, have we? No. Um, I mean, if we're talking about worst monarchs, I mean, he, he, he must be up there as amongst yeah, one of the a less man. successful a terrible ones. Man. And he was a little bit Nazi, wasn't he? he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> a tiny a little bit, bit I mean, I, I know that Tom doesn't necessarily hold that against people and... Mm. The spirit of the times, but, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I think being anti-Nazi <laughs> is I, all I right. Think you, I, in the context of you know the late 1930s, is I that think okay? that's an entirely legitimate <laughs> position to hold in. And yeah. I was I was very shocked. I was reading a book by this chap called Alex Larman's new, new book on on the called the Windsors at War, I think. And I hadn't I hadn't realized that George that George VI believed that his brother had actually sort of guided the the bombers during the war to sort of drop. Yeah. drop a bomb on the particular bit of the palace where they were all living. <laughs> yes. Not just like any old bit of Buckingham Get rid palace. of Shirley Temple, sort of they called the Queen, the, Exactly. Yeah. Landed in the drawing room or whatever while they were having tea. I mean, it was quite bad. I had no idea they came so, came so close to killing them all. Well, uh, uh, Tom, I know that your brother, James Holland, who you do the ancient world and he does the modern world. Um, I was talking to him before about this. He would have put George the Sixth as a candidate, a good as a, a great king. Well, a good king. Oh, he was a terror. I mean, he was just very, very dull. Ah, 
There you go. Very, Ian. very dull. I like him already. Yeah. Well, so he, I mean, by that, and, by the, and, and clearly he provided the model for, for the late queen. Yes. I mean, she, she, she idolised her father. Um, well, well, he provided a, a figurehead for Britain during, yes, the, during and, the war and, and that was much a, better than, her, than his elder brother would have been. Yeah, and a stable, you know, an image of stability. But he was not a charismatic man. He was played by Colin Firth, though. <laughs> yeah. We probably should come to some con- some conclusions. Yes. And I don't think we're going to come to a consensus. Mm. Well, I suppose I should I should nail my colours to the mast. Yeah. yeah. In in a spirit of old fashionedism, if there is such a word, I'm going to go for Edward the Third as the best. As the best. You don't massive lad. I mean, no question, the biggest lad <laughs> who ever sat on the English throne. He's a tremendous king. Yeah, and you know, in the in the spirit of the age, he did everything a king was supposed to do. He started the Hundred Years' War against France. Um, he precipitated a financial crash. Yes, uh, but you know, he was a proper warrior king. He got us through COVID. Um, well, he did. He well, but, well, well. So my favourite thing about Edward the Third, the Black Death hits. He gets advised by his physicians to do some social distancing. And so he holds the largest tournament ever held in England. <laughs> well, we know who his role model is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Didn't he also sire something like two-thirds of the English middle class? Am I not right? I think we're all descended from Edward <laughs> we're III. All descended we're all descended. Everyone, everyone, yes. everyone the whole of England. Yeah. Um, so there you and go, his yeah. son, the Black We can Prince, all claim him. Um, the greatest king who never ruled. Yes. Why? Because he killed even more people. Oh, he was tremendous. <laughs> Won the Battle of Poitiers. Single-handed. Pretty much. Glorious man. <laughs> he did what the English wanted. He beat the French. Yes. And I was going to put as my least favourite, I was going to go with Mary, I'm afraid, Leander. Well, that's just, I'm afraid that's just history written by, you know, the victors. Well, she did burn quite a lot of people. She did, but she had her reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reasons mainly were she wanted to bring back Catholicism. Yes, and no, I've no, absolutely. Because Catholicism hadn't quite died at that point. I mean, it was afterwards under, under Elizabeth. And you have to remember that yeah. Elizabeth as well, what I said about the widespread torture, that um, this hers was the yes. era of torture well, and indeed she killing. Was, she was the kind of the Tudor Ron DeSantis. She was trying to hold back you know, the nonsense of this new way of understanding things. Charles, on the other hand, Charles I, as I said, was a really useless king. Um, during the, the so-called 11 years tyranny, when he ruled without parliament, didn't execute anyone for religion. Nobody, Catholic, Protestant, It's nobody. such a low bar, this contest. It is, it? it is, it is. <laughs> Who didn't kill lots of people? Elizabeth II. So, again, no consensus here. Um, we did a quick whiz round of some of the audience earlier on. And... By a wide margin, the favourite monarch was Elizabeth II. Hooray! And yeah, I, I, a worthy winner, I think. Yes, I don't think many of us would argue against that. We had one vote for Alfred. Oh. Oh, come on. In Wessex? Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. How soon you forget. Yeah. <laughs> we had one vote for Ethelred as well. Oh. Ethelred the Unready. Yeah, maybe they meant Athelstan. Hmm. I mean, Athelred was, was rubbish. Athelred was a terrible king. Yeah. <laughs> he was abysmal. Well, he was unready. Yeah. Um, Charles II had a few votes. Oh, did he? Stephen is, has made it into a favourite. 
Stephen. That's, that's King Stephen Fry. <laughs> yes. He's our first monarch. I mean, he, the next he century. Stephen scores highly as as least favourite monarch. I mean, he's an interesting one, Stephen, isn't he? Because he was very popular. He seemed to have been a very nice bloke that everyone who knew him liked him, but a, a hopeless king in terms of plunging mm. England into civil war. 15 <laughs> years of anarchy yes. and civil war. But to be fair, that was because Christ and his saints were sleeping and they were having a lion. And if only they'd woken up, maybe it would all have been OK. <laughs> did George get no votes? George, George VI did. George the Third, did he get no votes? No. That's brilliant. That but proves my point. He oh, was so on, no. boring, people have forgotten. Uh, Elizabeth I must have had votes. Yes, she did get a few. She's probably second to that. Elizabeth II. The yeah. slave trade was abolished under George. That's worth a vote? Well, I think you've put forward a very... I just put that in as a cheap shot. No, you've put forward a very good case for, for George III. Least favourite is... Was he in favour of its abolition as a matter he of interest? He was, um, and he made one speech about it, which isn't a lot. <laughs> and, uh, but he didn't invest directly in slavery. All right. Which is, again, unlike quite yes. a lot of contemporary yes. figures. Yes. So, good I mean, And unsurprisingly, Henry VIII has, has come out top on the least favourite monarchs. Oh. Um, I'm, surprised. I'm surprised by that. But Edward V has got a lot of votes. For least. Oh, poor guy. I mean, all he did was get <laughs> murdered by his uncle. That <laughs> oh, <no>. seems harsh. <laughs> <laughs> he did, he did nothing. As, as best or worst? <laughs> as least favourite. I least suppose favorite. least favourite is not the same as worst. Picking on a person. murdered child. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very harsh. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> I don't trust this survey, you know. <laughs> Let's do a vote. Who thinks we should keep Elizabeth II as favourite monarch, at least? Yeah, I, yeah that's pretty yeah. overwhelming. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm definitely. Would anyone prefer to vote for Elizabeth I? Not so many. And what about, who, who would um, agree Henry VIII is, is, is the worst? Worst? Oh, not too many. So who do we... He was pretty What about bad. John, then? I don't know. Oh, John gets a lot of votes. Yeah. All right, well, let's see if you've swayed the audience, Ian. OK, Richard the Lionheart. Ghastly. Worst. Easily. One. No. Thank you very much. They love him. It's the anti-crusade vote I'm after. <laughs> and what about George III? Then? George III. Yes, look at that. You can't see it on the podcast, but the whole field is on their feet. <laughs> well, I'm That's very, very rotten borough-style voting, Ian. <laughs> Well, I, I think this proves that actually there's probably been more good monarchs than we perhaps thought. And uh, when there's not really a great consensus on who the worst are, because it's probably a widespread... I of, think there is. Of I think the consensus is it's John. <laughs> John? <laughs> yeah. okay, we did get more, more... I mean, does anyone want to shout out for someone we haven't mentioned as a great monarch? Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, Victoria, of course. Anyone want to vote for Victoria? Yeah, <laughs> <She> <laughs> Victoria. She tried to vote. They got shot. Victoria. Um, <laughs> shot Victoria had a dog called Looty because it had been looted from Peking. <laughs> I remember that. It's little Pekingese. That's from the Summer Palace. Yeah. It's, well, yes. So uh, pretty inconclusive, though I think. But uh, no, a, a lot of love, definitely for Elizabeth II. And in terms of what we want from a modern monarch, I think she is probably the epitome of it. 
but um, would have not been what was desired in the Tudor and Stuart period, and certainly not in the no. I, I don't know, the actually. I don't agree, actually. She, I think she would have been a great monarch in any period because um, she encouraged stability, prosperity, justice. Um, and as I said, in a way, although she didn't conquer France with a sword, the French loved her. And she and she increased um, the influence of Britain in the world at a time of you know the decline of empire. So she did push forward our boundaries in a sense. Um, yeah. So I I don't know. I think desperately I, trying to keep out of the pages of the Daily Mail tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was a great medieval monarch as well as a great modern monarch. <laughs> And she had lots of children. Well, thank you. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed listening to what you guys have had to say. I hope the the audience has too. Thank you to all of my guests here today, to Leander, to Ian and Tom. Thank you to everybody at the Chalk Valley History Festival for organising such a, a great festival and for inviting me back every year. But thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to that special edition of Willy Willy Harry's D live from the Chalk Valley History Festival in Wiltshire. And I will certainly be there again next year and I would hope to see you all there too. In our next episode, well, we don't pick up again with the regular series with someone from the Willy Willy Harry's D rhyme. I'm going to take another small detour and look at the life of Mary, Queen of Scots because she is a really important figure in British history. Even though she never came to the throne in England, she was the mother, as it were, of every British monarch since. The original line of the monarchy that went through the Tudors died out with Elizabeth I. She didn't have any children. And we flip to Scotland, where Mary's son, James VI, is brought in to rule England as James I. But to understand all that, we're going to have a special episode where we look at Mary, Queen of Scots. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy, Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy, Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.